We dive into a new series this morning, and I am, uh, I'm really excited about this series and very much excited uh, about this morning in particular as we jump into this new series entitled The Story, uh, where we will be unpacking uh, with a broad brushstroke the, the story of redemptive history. And so if you come in this morning and uh, your, your, your background is to view the Bible as a bunch of stories that are just kind of piecemealed together, and, and maybe you struggle to see uh, how everything is threaded together and makes sense collectively, then this series is for you. Um, I want to give thanks to Jason for doing much of the legwork to put these banners up, which help to tell um, each particular act of this story that we're going to unpack, uh, that of creation, of the fall of man, of redemption and of the ultimate restoration of all things in the end. And so my hope is uh, if you come in and you're a little fuzzy on uh, the story that the Bible tells in in the broad sense, uh, that before or after the service, even as you're sitting in your seat throughout this series, that you would take the time to just read through these banners. Um, And if you are familiar, that uh, it would uh, you know, help to reaffirm the things that you already believe. Um, our hope also is that if you have kids, that after the service, they would be able to come in, and if they're old enough to read, that they could read through these banners themselves as they stop between laps that they love to run after the service and uh, can familiarize themselves with this story as well. You'll notice if you begin to read the banners that uh, we've edited and taken from the Jesus Storybook Bible, those various pieces of the story. So they're uh, very much for kids and for adults alike. And so we hope that that serves you well. The, the Bible starts with a statement that encapsulates the entire story that follows. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That, that single statement reveals that there's a creator. It reveals what he created, namely everything, And it it invites the reader into the story of the purpose of that very creation. It's a story that's big enough to make sense of our lives. It's a story that's big enough to answer our questions. It's a story that's big enough to explain both the beauty and the brokenness that we see in the world, as well as in our own lives individually. It's a story that's big enough to make sense of our desires, of our dreams, of our disappointments. And it's a story that's big enough to give us hope in the midst of, of all of it. And most importantly... It's a true story, a a divine drama, which contrary to popular belief is primarily about God, and that's actually good news. It's about the God who's always existed and always will exist. It's about the God who created all things, including us, and who holds all things together by the word of his power. God's story is a story of good news that affects and shapes our story in every way. And so this is critical that we dive into a series like this and begin to unpack this very story. It's a story, as I said just a moment ago, with four main acts. As the curtains open and close, we have the act of creation. We, we have the act of the fall of man. We have, have the act of redemption in Christ. And we have the act of the restoration of all things that will come in the end when Jesus returns. And these acts not only reveal that God made everything in the beginning but they reveal that God will restore everything in the end. If you think that the Bible is nothing more than a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do, this series is unquestionably for you. Um, The Bible does have some rules in it, but the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you do or don't do. It's ultimately about God and what he has done. And we'll see that as we dive in. 
If you think the Bible is nothing more than a book of heroes, people to uh, model your life after, people to emulate, then this series is unquestionably for you because though the Bible does have some heroic people in it, most of them fall on their faces at some point along the way. The Bible is not ultimately a book of heroes. It's a redemptive story meant to point us to one true hero who binds the entire story together, and his name is Jesus. And we'll see him tattooed all across the pages of this story as we begin to dive into it. And so this morning, welcome. Welcome to the greatest story ever told. My hope is that as we dive into this story that you find your place in this unfolding redemptive narrative. And so if you have your Bible, you can open up this morning to Genesis chapter 1. Probably the easiest time you'll ever have on a Sunday morning here, finding the passage of Scripture. It's right past the table of contents. Hard to miss it. Uh, First chapter, first verse. We're going to dive in there and begin this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in front of you nearby. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. Take that Bible with you as the church's gift to you. If you don't own a Bible, we're excited that... Uh, you would explore the truth claims of Christianity on your own time and grow in a greater knowledge of this very story that we're about to unpack on your own time. Let me pray for us, uh, and we'll dive in, and we'll get to work. God, what a great opportunity that we have this morning. Um, What a great opportunity to grow in biblical literacy, in theological literacy. God, I pray for any in this room who come in and have a hard time seeing how uh, all of the scriptures are threaded together with, with one main purpose in mind, uh, with one main hero meant to communicate. I pray that you would help uh, those to see um, the, the beautiful threading together of this story from start to finish. For those in this room who have historically seen the Bible as nothing more than a set of rules, a set of, of do's and don'ts listed out, um, God, I pray that you would help them to see that the Bible is not ultimately about us and what we do or don't do, but is about you and what you have done for us. For those who see the Bible as a book of nothing more than a bunch of heroes to model their lives after, to emulate, I pray that you would help them to see uh, that there is only one true hero, one sinless one who has entered into this story. As one pastor once said it, uh, There's only one who rides in on a white horse. The rest of us get black horses, and he rides in and saves the day, and his name is Jesus, and I pray that we would make much of him throughout the course of this story. Um, God, would you help me this morning uh, to unpack uh, a weighty matter, namely the doctrine of your being, nature, and character as the author of this story in a very short time that we have together. Holy Spirit, we need you. Pray that uh, you would open our eyes to see things pertaining to the character of God that maybe we haven't seen before. I pray that you would open our hearts to receive those things. And God, ultimately, as we grow in an awareness of who you are and who we are in light of who you are, that the cross would loom larger in our lives, that we would see Jesus as that much more glorious. Father, would you do these things by the power of the Spirit? In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Very familiar words to most of us in this room. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. All right, what I want to do this morning is I want to begin with an exercise. I want you to to take just a moment and think of your favorite story or your favorite book. All right, Get, get that story in your mind. Get that book in your mind. 
What do you know about the author of that particular story, that particular book? Some of us, we could jump into a dissertation on that author. If we were given a microphone right now, we know everything there is to know about the author of our favorite book, and others of us are sitting in our seats ashamed right now that we don't know any, we didn't even look at the back dust cover to see who wrote the book that we adore so much. But the reality is this, the more we know about the author of any given book, any given story, helps us to understand the storyline itself. That the author's worldview contributes to the storyline of that particular book, as does the author's life experiences. So when you dive into a story, it's helpful to know who the author of that story is. They're trying to communicate something to you based on what they believe and what they've experienced along the way. It's no different with the Bible. Knowing something about the author tells us a great deal about the story itself, the story of Scripture. It tells us a great deal about ourselves as characters in that very story, as we're going to see momentarily. The author of the Bible just so happens to be the God of the universe. 2 Timothy 3.16 says it this way, All Scripture is breathed out by God. So when we talk about knowing the author of the Bible, we're talking about knowing God. A.W. Tozer famously said it this way. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Did you catch that? What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Your view of God shapes the way you live your very life. If you see God as an angry curmudgeon in the sky waiting to zap you with lightning bolts when you mess up, you will live a life of fear. If you see God as a divine Santa Claus who who distributes blessings to those who are nicer than they are naughty, you'll live a life of morality, but simply to get what you want in life and to avoid the bag of coal at all costs. If you see God as non-existent, the way of the atheists, you'll live a life in which everything is of no consequence or meaning, at least if you're a consistent atheist. If God exists... We could say it this way. It's an act of self-cruelty to not sit with the question, who is this God? Who is this author of the story of humanity? Which is why we're taking time this morning before we jump into the act of creation to unpack who God is. J.I. Packer says it this way. He says, as it would be cruel to an Amazonian tribesman to fly him to London, put him down without explanation in Trafalgar Square, and leave him as one who knew nothing of English or England to fend for himself, so we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. Does that make sense? That's what we're after this morning. We're we're going after the about the author snippet on the back of the novel. You might say. Now, there are a few things that are critical to say this morning um, as it pertains to knowing the author of the Bible. A few disclaimers. Let me throw those out there. Number one, we cannot know God exhaustively. Only God knows God exhaustively. However, we can know God truly as he has revealed himself to us. Number two, we cannot unpack everything that God has revealed to us regarding himself this morning. That's impossible. The entire Bible tells us about its author. And so uh, what we would have to do is you would have to allow me to preach uh, from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, 
all the way uh, through to the end of Revelation this morning. And I don't think any of us ate a big enough breakfast for me to do that. So that's not the goal of this morning. That's not what we're after. And so the third disclaimer is this. What that means is that we're not going to dive into a study of the attributes of God this morning. Is God loving? Absolutely. Is God just? Of course he is. Is God wise? Yes and amen to that. But as we work our way through this series, you're going to see all of those attributes come to bear through the act of creation, through the act of the fall of man. You're going to see God interact with his creation in certain ways that reveal his attributes. But this morning, my aim is very simple. It's to show us what Genesis chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 have to say about God. That's it. And in doing so, to show us how that impacts the entire story that you and I are a part of. So we want to connect the dots there. And so it's critical that every one of us in this room temper our expectations as it pertains to where we're going this morning. If you're dissatisfied with what you walk away with this morning, then here's what I would encourage you to do. Tomorrow, open your Bible and read it. And then do the same thing the next day, and 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 you'll begin to scratch the surface of of the character, being, and nature of God. If you're a Christian, this is, this is a huge reason why heaven will not be boring. That you're going to spend forever growing in intimate knowledge of your maker and redeemer. And for eternity, he will never cease to blow your mind. That's cool, right? It's a little bit better than streets of gold, I would say. This morning, we're, we're going to devote our attention to the first two verses of the Bible and what they say about God, along with an in, implicit thing or two that I think are critical for us to know in order to understand how it connects to us being a part of this bigger story. And so let's, let's dive into those things. Number one, God is absolute. Verse one, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God was there. You weren't there. I wasn't there. God is the only being in the universe with no beginning. If you sit with that for just long enough, it'll hurt your brain. If it doesn't hurt your brain, you haven't sat with it long enough. You should spend just a few more minutes sitting with it. It will eventually blow your mind. Nothing brought God into being. He always was. Psalm uh, chapter 90 verse 2 says, says it this way. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Not only is God timeless, he's the God of time itself. He created space and time. He's not bound by either as we are. God is self-existent and self-sufficient. He's dependent upon nothing. He needs nothing. Acts chapter 17, verse 24 and 25 say it this way. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. In other words... God did not create human beings because he was lonely, contrary to popular belief. God did not create human beings because he needed to be loved. That's a a terrible trait anyway. Have you ever thought about that? If God gives you his measure of love and receives your measure of love in return, he's on the losing end of that transaction every time, is he not? God didn't create you and I because he was lacking anything. He's self-existent, he's absolute He's self-sufficient, dependent upon nothing. Do do you see how that changes your entire understanding of the story completely? 
If you believe God created you out of his good pleasure, it gives you a very different perspective on the story than if you believe that God created you out of a sense of loneliness. The author didn't create the characters out of a sense of need. He was not lonely in the beginning. He's never been lonely. He's never been dependent on anyone or anything. Second critical thing to know about the author of this story is this. God is personal. Uh, If we fast forward to next week's passage, we're going to pick up in verse 3 next week. But I think it's critical to look there for just a moment because verses 3 and 4 are where we get our first glimpse that God is not some impersonal force but a personal being. Look at verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, speaking. Speaking is an activity associated with personal beings, not impersonal forces. Verse 4. And God saw that the light was good. He saw. Seeing is an activity associated with personal beings, not impersonal forces. Why do I spend time arguing that God is a personal being? Well, We live in a world that includes both, do we not? Personal beings like you and me and impersonal forces, time, matter, motion, chance, and so forth and so on. And one of the the greatest philosophical questions that human beings have grappled with throughout human history is this. Which of those two things is preeminent? Which of those two things is the product of the other? Going back to the beginning. Some believe that personal beings like you and me derive our existence from impersonal structures. In other words, you and I are nothing more than the product of time, matter, motion, and chance. The unintentional evolving of primordial sludge into the glory of man, as some people say it. This is a huge deal. A huge deal. Listen to me, because if the impersonal came before the personal, if you and I are are the accidental result, the accidental product of irrational happenings, then this story that you and I are a part of has absolutely no meaning whatsoever. Throw away all music, all movies, anything that attempts to create a storyline that has any meaning to it, because there is none. If our existence is the accidental result of chance, let me just throw out some questions to you. Why should we trust human rationality anymore when the origin of everything is irrational? Why should we see anything as meaningful anymore when everything is simply the product of chance? Why should we live according to any sort of moral code when morality will go unrewarded in the end? And some might say, well, we live according to a moral code so that we don't become extinct, Jamie. But if there's no meaning in all of this, who's to say I'm wrong for wanting all of us to become extinct? Right? I get to call the shots just like anyone else at that point. If it really is about survival of the fittest, this is going to sound strong, but no one should ever help a little old lady across the street ever again. In fact, rather, we should all get in our cars and run them over before they get to the other side. After all, they're just using up the earth's resources, resources that could be ours for the taking, right? Without God, anything goes. Without God, we cannot point the finger at Hitler or the terrorists responsible for 9-11, and so forth and so on. You have no basis for doing that. John Frame, in his book, Apologetics to the Glory of God, and I would encourage you to get that book. It's fantastic. He says this. He says, If the impersonal is primary, then there is no consciousness, no wisdom, 
and no will in the ultimate origin of things. What we call reason and value are the unintended accidental consequences of chance events. Moral virtue will, in the end, be unrewarded. Friendship, love, and beauty are all of no ultimate consequence, for they are reducible to blind, uncaring process. He goes on to say, but... If the personal is primary, then the world was made according to a rational plan that can be understood by rational minds. Friendship and love are not only profound human experiences, but fundamental ingredients of the whole world order. There was someone who wants there to be friendship, who wants there to be love. Moral goodness, too, is part of the great design of the universe if personality is absolute. There is one who cares about what we do, who approves or disapproves of our conduct, he says, that beauty, you could say, is the result of, of the brushstroke of an eternal artist. Morality finds its foundation in an eternal moral being. Whether or not we believe this to be true very much shapes our perspective on the story that you and I are a part of. Frame goes on to eloquently say this. He says, Instead of a gray world of matter and motion and chance in which anything could happen but nothing much ever does, the world would be the artistic creation of the greatest mind imaginable with a dazzling beauty and fascinating logic. It would be a history with a drama, a human interest, a profound subtlety and elusiveness more illuminating than the greatest novelist could produce. That divine history would have a moral grandeur that would turn all of the world's evil to good. Even most atheists would agree that that would be a nice world to be a part of. God speaks. God sees, according to verses 3 and 4. And those two little words, spoke and saw, are the difference between a meaningless story and a beautiful, glorious, divine drama. God is absolute. On the one hand, he's eternal, timeless, self-existent, self-sufficient, dependent upon nothing. He didn't bring us into the story out of a sense of need. And on the other hand, God is personal, a magnificent artist, a great novelist, a being of moral grandeur. That that story that you're a part of is, is one of beauty and meaning. There's purpose in you being a part of this divine drama. Thirdly, going back to verse one, God is creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so there are two things that are critical to to glean from this. Number one, God is different from us. God is the creator and we are the created. You could say it this way. We cannot lose our creatureliness and God cannot lose his divinity. Even when Jesus took on flesh, he added humanity to his divinity. Here's the beauty of seeing the distinction between the, the creator and the created as we look at this Uh, grand story of redemptive history. Number one, it frees you from the eternal chase of self-exaltation. There's only one creator, and you're not him. And that's good news. It frees you. There's freedom in no longer trying to do God's job for him, and there's freedom in realizing, realizing that you can't do God's job for him. And secondly, if God has the pen in hand as creator, that means he really is in control, even when it feels like he's not. He's not blindsided by some alteration of the script unbeknownst to him. He's writing the script himself. Ephesians 1.11 says it this way. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Job 42.2 says this. I know that you can do all things, God, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. 
that God has determined how the story is gonna go and he determined it long before he said, let there be light and we'll get there momentarily so that we can be comforted by the fact that God knows where the story is going because he's the creator of all of it. But here's the beauty of this story. God is not only distinct from his creation, but he's also heavily involved in his creation. He's not the God of deism who who wound up the clock in the very beginning and then just checked out on his creation, completely uninvolved from it. Here's something crazy to think about. Did you know, think about this, turn on your brain, take a sip of coffee, Did you know that the very first verse in the Bible communicates that God wants you to know him and to be be known by him? You go, really? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That communicates something about God wanting to to know me and to to have me to know him. How how does that phrase prove that God is involved in your life? Well, Well, think about it this way. The fact that you can even read those words the words associated with Genesis 1-1 is evidence that God wants to make himself known to you. God didn't have to give us a Bible, right? God wasn't obligated to give us the Bible. It's what theologians refer to as the doctrine of divine revelation, God's revealing of himself, that without divine revelation, we're left with nothing more than human speculation. If God doesn't reveal himself to us, we cannot know who God is. You cannot decide to embark on a mission to know something of God and get anywhere on your own initiative. It's impossible. If you claim to know anything about God, it's because God has revealed something of himself to you. The fact that Genesis 1-1 exists is evidence that God is involved in his story. You don't have to wait till the gospels when Jesus enters in on the scene to see it. You don't even have to wait until Adam and Eve enter the scene to see God involved in his creation. He's distinct from his creation, and yet he's incredibly involved in his creation, so much so that eventually he does step into the very script himself, taking on human flesh. So let me throw out this question to to you this morning. Where do you struggle with God as creator? Is it with the distinction piece? The desire to be the ultimate standard of truth yourself? The desire to determine on your own how you should live your life. The desire to create your own meaning in life. The desire to hold the pen in hand yourself as the author. Or is it with the involved piece? The struggle to believe that God would ever speak to you personally. The struggle to believe that God cares about you personally. The struggle to believe that God wants to know you and to be known by you. See, according to the scriptures, we're freed from playing the part of the God of the universe, and yet we can experience the joy of knowing the God of the universe and being known by that very same God. How you perceive God as creator will unquestionably shape your perspective as it pertains to the story. And lastly, what we see about God, according to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, is this, that God is triune. Chapter, uh, verse two, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The, the story of creation itself tells of an author who's three in one. The doctrine of the Trinity 
in its most simplistic form, it goes like this. There's one God. That one God exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Each fully and equally God, equal in power, glory, and honor without division of essence. The Westminster Confession of Faith says it this way. In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Every analogy in an attempt to explain the Trinitarian God of the Bible falls short. It's a joke. It usually leads to heresy. Due to the fact that God's very being is beyond our full comprehension, you cannot explain it, and yet he's revealed himself in this way to us in the scriptures. Genesis 1 verses 1 and 2, we see, In the beginning God, declarative of the Father, created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, was hovering over the face of the waters. If you fast forward to John chapter 1, you see similar language. Look at this. John chapter 1 verse 1 begins very similarly to Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, does it not? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Who are we talking about there? None other than the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ himself. The word became flesh, John goes on to tell us, and dwelt among us. It's Jesus. And so we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the beginning playing a part in the creation process. Why does it matter that we spend time talking about the doctrine of the Trinity this morning. For some of you, you're going, man, I've heard this until I, you know, you're blue in the face with this one, Jamie. But here's the reason. It makes clear that when we say that Jesus is the hero of the entire story, we mean it. We don't believe that Jesus showed up on the scene when we get to the Gospels for the first time. We don't even believe that the first time that we see Jesus as a part of the story is in Genesis 3.15 when we get the declaration in the wake of sin uh, entering the story that Jesus is going to come and crush the serpent's head. No, Jesus was around from the very beginning as a part of the creation process as we'll get to next week. But here's a crazy thing to think about. This one blew my mind this week. This, I really do believe this was just a God moment Um, as I was preparing this week's sermon, not only do we see Jesus as creator from the very beginning, but we also see him as redeemer from the very beginning. Listen to these crazy verses. 2 Timothy 1, verse 9 says this, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. The Greek there, before the ages began, means before times eternal. Before time began, Paul's saying, God gave us his grace in Christ Jesus. The grace of God was ours before the clock of human history started ticking. The cross wasn't plan B, in other words. Or maybe even a crazier verse would be Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, which says this. All who dwell on earth will worship it, namely the beast, Satan himself. 
Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb that was slain. Let me read that one again. I'm going to leave it up on the screen for a while because it hurts your head. All who dwell on earth will worship it, the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb that was slain. Translation, before there was any sin to die for, God planned that his son would die for sinners. The apostle John tells us that there was a book that existed before the foundation of the world, before Genesis 1-1, before any of the grandeur that we're gonna talk about next week comes into being. And that book was known as the book of life of the lamb that was slain. He's talking about Jesus there. Let this blow your mind because it blew mine this week. According to Revelation 13, 8, if you're a Christian, your name was in that book before God created the heavens and the earth. That's unbelievable. Before time began, the death of God the Son was the plan. Before the clock of human history started ticking, everything was looking forward to that moment in human history. That's why your entire Old Testament foreshadows the coming of Jesus. That's why the entire New Testament, since the death of Jesus, everything has looked back to that moment in human history. That Jesus lived a life that you and I could never live. He died the death that we deserve to die in our place for our sins, as we'll see in a couple of weeks when we get to the, the act of the fall of man as the curtain opens on that particular act. Our sins were put upon Jesus and he was punished in our place and he didn't stay dead. We celebrated that last week and we, we celebrate it every week. We celebrate it every day as Christians. We don't serve a dead God, we serve a risen savior. He rose from the dead victorious, conquering our great enemies of sin and death and he promises to save all who will come to him with nothing more than their sin and the empty hands of faith trusting in him. The cross is the centerpiece of the glory of God throughout the landscape of all of human history, revealing his grace, which will be praised for eternity by his people. When we say that Jesus is the hero of all of scripture, and we're gonna say it throughout the course of this entire series, that's not some trite phrase that we throw around haphazardly around here. That's not some attempt at sneaking the gospel into every gathering that we have. That's not what we're doing. It's true. We mean it. That from before Genesis 1-1 to long after Revelation 22, verse 21, Jesus was, is, and forever will be the hero of this story that we're going to unpack for weeks. So I invite you into this story to join us as we begin to dive into the, the most glorious story of all stories, a story that really does make sense of our lives, a story that really can answer our questions, a story that really is big enough to explain both the beauty and the brokenness that you and I see in the world and in our own lives, a story that really is big enough to make sense of our desires, of our dreams, and of our disappointments, and a story that really is big enough to give us hope in the midst of, of all of that. Welcome to the greatest story ever told. In a moment, we're going to take communion, uh, which is an act of celebrating, remembering the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, which is the third act of, of this story, which we'll get to a few weeks from now. And so if you're a Christian, this meal is for you. We take the bread and dip it in the cup here, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. We invite you 
to come to celebrate the one uh, in whose book your name was written before the foundations of the world who loved you before time began. Celebrate that this morning, Christian. If you're not a Christian, my, my prayer for you is that you would turn to Jesus with nothing more than your sin and the empty hands of faith and trust in him this morning as the author of your story and as the redeemer of your story. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.